my first book was actually about egg agencies and sperm banks. And so I had remembered that they had this age restriction on for men well before there was any scientific evidence of the increasing paternal age being associated with an increasing risk of autism and schizophrenia in their children and various other kinds of disorders. So I went back and I was wondering, you know, did the sperm banks know something before everybody else did and they didn't tell people <laughs> or, or what happened here? Renee Almerling, our guest today. And you're going to hear Renee tell us about her book, Gynecology, and the incredible research that she's done to find out why there are so many gaps and such a lack of research when it comes to giving us a better understanding of male reproductive health and ultimately issues around male infertility. <laughs> For over six years now, the Fertility Podcast has been sharing content with you, talking about the A to Z of things that might be affecting your fertility. And as we head into our seventh year, things are changing. You see, the podcast is just a portal into a world of more support, which ultimately is what you need more than ever when you're trying to conceive. So who are we? Well, I'm Natalie Silverman. If you've listened to the podcast, you'll know. I used to be on the radio. I'm also a professional voiceover, so I basically talk a lot for a living. And I launched this podcast after successful fertility treatment. And in 2019, I brought in the brilliant Kate Davis. Kate is a fertility nurse consultant. You know what you're talking about and you offer amazing clinical support. I think it's great to give information out to people this way because it's so accessible. We know from talking to our guests that actually they love listening to it in this way because certainly with men they can listen to it and no one else knows that they're listening to information about fertility. Now part of what is changing with the podcast is that Kate and I are offering an amazing support network and so what we want to do is offer you the chance to be a patron of this podcast. So what does all of this mean? You're going to get shout outs on the podcast and your name if you want it or it can be your social media handle will be on the Fertility Podcast website. We're going to be having some awesome monthly get-togethers and we're going to take the time to answer your questions and bring in some fab speakers. And if there's someone you've been really wanting to hear from, you can have a say on who we interview going forward as we'll be running polls for you to vote on. You'll get early access to our episodes a week ahead of their release. Plus, there's going to be other really useful resources too. So what you need to do is get on the case and join us today. It's very simple. Just go to patreon.com forward slash the fertility podcast. The early years from the fertility podcast, where we aim to talk about the stuff you wish you had known before trying to conceive. Now, as you know, the fertility podcast is all about empowering you in the next steps in your fertility journey. And we're always delighted to find people who are on the same mission as we are. So we give a massive welcome to Merck, a new sponsor of the Fertility Podcast. They are a leading science and technology company with a rich history in the area of fertility. And with this experience, Merck has launched Bloom, a brand new website intending to provide you with information, whether you're looking to start your family or grow it and you need some help on what you're going to do next. So to find out more, just visit MerckBloom.com. So I'm really delighted to now welcome Renee Almerling to the podcast. Renee is a sociologist at Yale University with research and teaching interest in gender and medicine. And she's the author of Gynecology, a book which you might have seen me posting on my Instagram because I read about it in Elle magazine. Renee had written an article about the book just a few weeks ago. I ordered the book. I tweeted Renee 
And here we are. Yay. I love it when this happens. <laughs> Welcome, Renee, to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, I've got, I'll just show Kate, look at the number of post-it notes. Oh, oh, I've got a lot of post-it notes from reading your book. And I said to Kate, you've got to read this book because I can't send it to you because I'm still reading it. And do you want to tell Renee what happened whilst you were trying to yeah. buy it? Yeah. So firstly, I wanted to see if I could get it from a friend because when I went onto Amazon to get it, it wasn't available until 24th September, which would have been after, today is the 21st September when we, when we were interviewing you. So it wouldn't have been available. And then that was the earliest and it would, I think the latest would be 24th of October. So what I had to do, and this shows my dedication to the podcast, <laughs> is I had to buy a Kindle and then I had to buy your book and download it to the Kindle. So that is oh dedication goodness. to the podcast. <laughs> I, I feel so honoured to have inaugurated you into the land of Kindles. <laughs> I, I do. I love it. I have to say, I, I do love go. a Kindle. But, yeah. So now yeah, you've got a new I toy. I do. I do. It feels like that too. Well, so we're here to talk about your book, Gynecology, Renee, The Missing Science of Men's Reproductive Health. Firstly, tell us who this book is for. Well, you know, the book, uh, so I'm a sociologist at Yale University. And so writing the book, I was really writing for a variety of audiences. I would say it is definitely for students taking university classes about the history of medicine and gender and knowledge. But I did try to write it in such a way that it would be accessible and interesting for a much broader audience. So people who themselves have struggled with fertility, people who are interested in reproductive politics, people who are interested in sort of sex and gender issues more broadly. So the hope is that there's multiple audiences for the book. And I mean, I have to admit, from reading my Kindle, it has been utterly fascinating. I have to confess, I haven't finished it yet. There's still quite a lot that I need to read, but I am loving what I'm, I'm reading so far. And I just want to say as well, because Natalie, when you when you said the title, we need to make sure that it's guy necology because obviously it sounds so much like guy necology right. so guy g u y so the guy necology that's the whole idea of it which is a great name by the way Renee I think it's a fantastic name but reading about reading the book and reading about the historical account of the study of men's reproductive health and you talk about how whilst way back when there were developments in devising the medical specialty of women's reproduction based on the premise that it's the women who have the babies mm -hmm. but then any attempt to launch this kind of parallel specialty for men was really ridiculed at the time why was that yeah, well, this was, you know, it's sort of an episode at the end of the 19th century that is not well known. And so this is the first book to really dive into that. And so I spend a chapter on this attempt at the end of the 1800s to create a new specialty for men's reproductive bodies called andrology. And at the time, you know, the medical profession was just becoming a profession. For us over here in the U.S., the American Medical Association was founded in 1847. And within a couple decades, there started to be new specialties. And among the first and largest specialties were obstetrics and GYN gynecology, with the idea that 
you know, women's birthing and pregnancy and reproductive health was sort of a separate area of knowledge that you needed to specialize in. And so as obstetrics and gynecology got larger and, you know, with their own journals and their own clinics and their own physicians, and there was a group of physicians based in New York City who said, hey, well, what about, you know, sort of men's reproductive health? Uh, we should have something, you know, they called it a parallel specialty. So they were sort of thinking about this binary of male and female, that women had this, these specialties and men needed them too. And they said, well, we need andrology. And so they tried to create the American Association of Andrology. And they get completely ridiculed for the idea that there would be a specialty for men's reproductive bodies. And in large part, the ridicule is because Men's reproductive health at that time was mostly about venereal disease, uh, what we would call sexually transmitted diseases today. Syphilis and gonorrhea were absolutely rampant. And so these doctors were basically trying to elevate an extremely stigmatized part of the male anatomy. And so they were they were ridiculed for it. And that's the end of andrology until the 1960s when there's another group of physicians who tries again. <laughs> they didn't realize, you know, they, they also wanted to call it andrology. They also talked about it as a parallel to gynecology, but they didn't realize that they weren't the first to come up with this. And so they do actually succeed a little bit. So we now, you know, there are andrologists. Many of them are working in fertility clinics where they specialize in sort of the counting of sperm and looking at sperm shape and motility and all of that. Um, so we now have andrology, but it's nowhere near the kind of established large specialty that OBGYN has now become. Because in the conversations that I've had with urologists and andrologists, and there's one uh, really well-regarded urologist in the UK called Jonathan Ramsey, and he explained this to me, that there just wasn't enough study, there wasn't enough people studying it, that the people who wanted to study didn't have enough people to kind of practice on. And I felt like he was whistleblowing. It was like this total <laughs> scandal that this didn't exist. And to read what you've described in the book and how you were wanting to study it more, but it just didn't exist. It just beggars belief when we know what a huge part of the whole reproductive process it is. And especially when it comes to infertility, we know that it's often 50, well, it's pretty often, it's pretty much always 50-50 male-female factor. Why do you think they just wouldn't acknowledge it till so late? Well, I think there's a couple of things going on. So, you know, because I, I came at this from a sort of sociological and historical angle, I really, I was very interested in how did we get to today where, you know, we have this very large specialty of OBGYN for women. And yes, there are some urologists who specialize in male infertility. You know, there are a few andrologists out there now. So it's, it's not like it doesn't exist mm. at all, but the level of attention is so disparate. And I really wanted to understand, well, how do we get to this point? And so that requires historical look, right? So finding out that there had been these attempts in the past, that they hadn't really launched, you know, they hadn't really worked. But also the back history of urology itself is fascinating. So urology, and again, you know, medical specialization happens a little bit differently from country to country. So I was really looking at the U.S. And in the U.S., the urologists form the American Urological Association around 1904, 1905. And that was an explicit attempt to distance themselves from what had been the specialty of genitourinary surgery. They didn't like the genito part of it. And so, you know, the first president of the American Urological Association is in print saying, 
you know, we're not going to accept people to our meetings who are talking about VD. We want to cut out the genito from genitourinary surgery. So you get this specialty of urology, which is about the urinary tract, which has something to do with reproductive organs, but really becomes focused on sort of urinary diseases and kidney stones and this sort of thing. So again, the way that medical specialization unfolds continues to leave out any notion of men's reproductive health, of male infertility. So that's sort of one kind of area that I think that's where, you know, we can really look to for an explanation of like, why do we still have so little attention to men? There's a part in your in your book, a sentence that you wrote, Renee, that really resonated with me. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read it out to you. You said, it may make sense that there has been more attention to women, but it does not follow that there should be almost no attention to men. And the reason that it resonated with me is that I see with my patients, I often see them as couples. So they'll often recount experiences within their fertility clinic of the conversation being directed to the woman and the man virtually ignored. And in fact, we've heard, haven't we, Natalie, that some men just feel that they actually could could easily be sat outside the door. There's been no attention to them whatsoever. And one thing that I just struggle with, struggle to really understand is that why there is not more cohesive working between fertility clinics and andrology, particularly when it's, well, obviously when it's a male factor in fertility. Why do you think that is the case? Yeah, I'm, I'm just sitting here. You can't see me, but I'm sitting here nodding. <laughs> I'm saying yes, yes. So, you know, I think the, so I've sort of just kind of given you a story about urology and andrology and the history of that. I think the other part of the story is about fertility clinics and reproductive endocrinology and OBGYN. You know, those are specialties that over the course of the 20th century into the present really did focus in on women's bodies. If a heterosexual couple walks in the door, the tendency for more than a century now has been to look at the woman, to evaluate the woman, to test the woman, such that, you know, I was tweeting about my book last week and somebody wrote back and said, you know, she had been through all the tests in the world until somebody thought to actually do a sperm analysis on her husband. And that's a story I could have pulled out of 1915 or 1965 or 1995. So I'm one that we even though I think that Exactly. So it's, I think it has certainly gotten better. There is more attention to male infertility, you know, in fertility and sterility, the journal, there is now a section for andrology, there's attention to men's uh, sort of fertility issues. But the tendency, which is in part uh, an effect of this long, long, long history of focusing on women and reproduction, that the sort of the tying together of women's bodies and reproductive processes is so historically and culturally deep that it's very difficult to shift attention to men in reproduction, even when it seems like that would be the obvious thing to do. So, you know, I think the the output of that is these individual stories that we hear, and these individual stories are awful and they're frustrating, but it is the product of this sort of historical, structural, cultural process that is training people's attention on women's bodies and not on men's. Because you also described about how this lack of singular cohesive specialty made it difficult for any of the scientific work to be sustained because it would, in essence, fall on deaf ears. And that's certainly the impression I've had from the conversations I've had from those working in andrology, that there's just not been, even up to now, I think there might have been, the most conclusive study might have been in in Denmark. I don't know whether there's been more in in the US, but um, it's still happening, these studies that are needed. 
Yeah, well, I think the thing that's interesting about medical specialization, which sounds like such an esoteric topic, right? But the thing that's so important about the existence of a specialty is that it does bring scientists and clinicians together to study particular issues. And so with OBGYN, you have a huge network of people who are trained and medical schools teach it and medical students learn it and more studies are done and people go and present at meetings and they meet each other and then they start new studies. And so that sort of infrastructure that comes out of medical specialization is hugely important for the production of knowledge. And that's what we don't have all the way through the 20th century and again into the present for men's reproductive health. There's sort of these attempts to kind of get it started and they don't take. And so then you have this effect of there's no infrastructure, there's no place to go, there's no journal to go publish in if you're interested in male infertility in the early 20th century. There's no conference to go to, there's no other people to meet. And so, you know, it's it's one of the findings from the book that I wasn't expecting. I wasn't expecting to be writing this much about medical specialization as a key part of the story, but I think it is part of, you know, this explanation for why we can still have, you know, people like me publishing books in 2020 saying, where is this? Why do we still not have this? Which is crazy when you think, and and you mentioned this in the book, and it's something that I think in more, certainly in the last few months has been more and more about in the media, is that we know that there is the rate of the new mutations in the sperm of older men is now believed to be responsible for the same proportion of chromosomal disorders as in older women, yet we're still not paying attention to male sperm. Bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, the middle of the book is really devoted to an in-depth look at what are called paternal effects. So we are all very familiar with maternal effects, you know, the effects of women's advancing age on reproductive outcomes or women drinking or smoking or being exposed to harmful chemicals during pregnancy. These are very well known, you know, Mm. people can rattle them off. But there is a new sort of emerging area of research called paternal effects, which suggests that in the two to three months it takes sperm to grow in the male body before it can ever be released and, and be involved in a pregnancy, that this is a pretty key time time for men's own bodily health, which includes their age, includes their behaviors, and includes their exposures. So people are exposed to all kinds of chemicals in their workplaces, in their homes, and these can actually damage sperm. And they don't damage it so much that it causes infertility, but they damage it in a way that it can actually affect their children's health. And so that is a crucial distinction. You know, in the last decade or two or three, we are getting a little bit more attention to male infertility. I went and looked for any attention to paternal effects, which is this idea that it's not just sperm damage that causes the sperm to stop working. It's sperm damage that can affect children's health. And there's almost nothing. I looked at federal health agencies. I looked at professional medical associations. I went to patient health websites. There's almost no discussion of this new form of sperm damage. And to me, that is, you know, another part of the story that because we don't pay attention to men's reproduction, we have less attention to male infertility and almost no attention to paternal effects. And when I was started reading the book and your your scenario, the scenario of the man 
waking up in the morning and the first thing he thinks about is his infertility. The first things he does is have his lukewarm shower to avoid cooking his sperm, brushes his teeth with natural toothpaste. I mean, it made me chuckle because that's exactly, you know, that's what we're, as women, we're trying to people conceive. Are going to. That's the lengths they're going to, you know, throwing on a shirt and a pair of pants, you wash with a new detergent, stripped of all dyes and scents. You know, that's what women are doing, yet men are still going about their business, not considering these things as much because we're not telling them that. Yeah, yeah. And this is the, you know, the the last part of the book, I would say, was where I sort of turned to the general public. And I was interested, how do men think about reproduction? You know, sociologists, just like clinicians, mostly study women when it comes to reproduction. Same with sociologists. We've done endless interview studies with women about pregnancy and birth and contraception and abortion. And But we hardly talk to men about these issues. So I recruited a sample of 40 men from the general population. So they're not in fertility clinics. They're not in sperm banks. They're not thinking about anything particularly reproductive. They're just, you know, average men from the general population. And I asked them, you know, how do you think about your role in reproduction? How do you think about the sperm and the egg? You know, the story that I got from these men was that they they hardly think about reproduction at all. You know, and many of them, in fact, the last time they thought about their own reproductive systems was in high school during a sex ed class or a health class. And it's because, you know, they don't go to the doctor. They're not encouraged to go to the doctor on a regular basis to have their reproductive organs examined. Their clinicians aren't asking them about their reproductive plans. Nobody's telling them about the effects of harmful chemicals or advancing paternal age. And so it's not surprising that men don't know much because nobody's raising these issues. So that, I would say, is one of the main agendas of the book, is that I really want to bring light to these issues and make people more generally aware of how much a man's health prior to conception can affect the health of his children. And it's a it's a basic message, but it's a really important message. There's been some quite interesting pieces of work in the UK. There's a, a short film called The Easy Bit, which was five guys as talking heads talking about their experiences once they knew that there was a problem. And a lot of the conversations talked about the, the guilt and the shame associated with it. And one of the things that when I've been involved in conversations about this before with men, it's the whole focus the narrative society has on men's virility and how, you know, men should produce and how, like you say, it's just not something that men talk about. And do you think that's part of the problem? It's like most of the medical profession that were, were reluctant to even class it as something worth studying, didn't want it to be an issue. So they've, they've, they've like sidelined it. And then, you know, as a society as a whole, we just don't want it to be an issue. So we sideline it. Yeah, well, and I think the the feelings of shame and guilt and anxiety, those are very real. And I think at the same time, as I sit here and say, you know, this is important, men should hear this, people should, should know about it. I also think that sort of the newness of the idea that men's reproductive bodies matter, the newness of that information, I think, is a real opportunity to take a step back and think about the messages that we offer around reproductive health more generally, because I think a lot of them are sort of blaming and stigmatizing and moralizing. Not the sort of idea that women are responsible for every bite they take and every breath they breathe and every, you know, that 
doesn't really help people um, feel good about the kind of steps that they're taking. That makes them feel anxious. That makes them feel like they're to blame if anything goes wrong. And I think particularly at a moment where, you know, especially in the United States, we're watching just a complete breakdown of any sort of public health infrastructure. We are learning the lesson over again that any one person's health is not solely a matter of their own individual decision making. People's health is also a matter of their time and their place and the their race and their financial resources. So I think one of the things I'd like to do with men's reproductive health as an idea is rethink public health messaging uh, about reproductive health such that we talk about the importance of structural investments in health and environmental contributors to health so that we improve the health of everybody whether or not they're planning to reproduce or not. And so that's, you know, at the same time, I want to sort of get the message out there. Hey, this is new. This is important. But let's also share that message in a way that doesn't blame and stigmatize people. So you also mention in the book about the age restrictions from sperm banks in the early 80s and that donors should be younger than 40 to therefore minimize the chances of age-related genetic abnormalities. Yet, we talk all the time about women's biological clock and the ticking clock, but we don't really talk about how that features for men. And in fact, we often say, you know, men can go on conceiving until they're in their 80s and their 90s. How do we start? Yes, exactly. (laughs) How do we start talking about that differently and changing the narrative and getting that information out there? Yeah, I mean, this is a this was a really interesting moment in the book. I will say my first book was actually about egg agencies and sperm banks. And so I had remembered that they had this age restriction on for men well before there was any scientific evidence of the increasing paternal age being associated with an increasing risk of autism and schizophrenia in their children and various other kinds of disorders. So I went back and I was wondering, you know, did the sperm banks know something before everybody else did and they didn't tell people or or what happened here? But it was actually in the early 80s, sperm banks started restricting male donors to the age of 40 or younger. And that was because of an earlier round of some pretty rare genetic disorders that are associated with growth. So it was a particular set of disorders that they were concerned about, but in effect, Sperm banks have mostly relied on men under the age of 40 for the last several decades. And now we know, starting in the last 10 or 15 years, now we have increasing evidence that with every passing year, a man's sperm is more likely to develop new mutations that can result in health problems for his children. In the realm of paternal effects, I think that the age data is some of the strongest data. And this is something that men just don't know. You know, of the 40 men that I interviewed, you know, I asked them questions after I sort of asked in general about reproduction. I would say, you know, if you were thinking about having a child, would you do anything differently? Expecting, you know, somebody might mention age or I would watch out for chemicals or something. And I think there was one man out of the 40 who had heard anything about paternal age. So this is definitely, you know, this is just low hanging fruit. This is basic information that with, you know, a public health campaign or drop it into a high school curriculum or when men do go to their general practitioner, if they are in their 30s, 20s or 30s, that the general practitioner can mention just like they do with women. Like, are you thinking about having a child? Here's some information you should know. So I think that there's a lot of mechanisms in place. 
I actually ended the book thinking we don't need a whole new specialty for men's reproductive health. We just need to take our umbrella of reproductive health and expand that to include men. And I would say not only men, also transgender people and gender non-binary people and gender non-conforming people. We need to think about everybody's health and the effect that it might have on reproductive outcomes if and when people decide that they would like to try to have kids. So I think there's a lot of mechanisms in place already in the reproductive health community that by just stretching that umbrella a bit to say, hey, let's also talk about men's health and let's talk to our male patients. I think there's a lot of ways that we can reach the general public without too much effort. I definitely agree. And I think that's something that in the work that we've done with this podcast and the kind of community that there is, especially in the UK, there's a kind of uh, a fertility community and there's various like arts councils doing the art festivals doing stuff. And that documentary that I mentioned, that education piece is happening. But I also liked how you said about how there's not been this sustained attention. And it is that it's that continuous message, because like you say, it's missing from such obvious places. When I took my husband to meet the urologist that I mentioned earlier, for a a podcast interview because he'd asked to meet us both one of the first things he did was physically examine my husband now we had had successful ICSI treatments but nobody you know when the diagnosis was being given nobody physically examined him and this as as we've learned hardly ever happens at those early stages with men and it's something that with the podcast Kate and I you know we have a lot of conversations about these tests like sperm DNA fragmentation tests and tests that men are not knowing about and until they're pushing to ask more for more than just a sperm test and I know you describe a lot about the test in, in the book as well that they just they just don't know what they don't know exactly exactly yeah and I'm so glad that you're out there and raising awareness around this issue I mean I think the other the lowest of the low-hanging fruit here is preconception care appointments so there are actually now people who are you know they are planning to have a child they call their doctor and say, can we come in and talk about how we're planning to have a child? And those appointments are almost entirely focused on the women's weight, behavior, occupation, you know, what is it that she's doing? And it's almost never the case that anything about men's preconception health is raised in those appointments. Um, So for the small proportion of people who actually do plan ahead to that extent, you know, that's something that they should go in and say, okay, well, what can the male partner be doing in this situation? Renee, um, a few years ago within the UK's National Health Service, I used to run a preconception care clinic and uh, and it was a great clinic. And then with all the cuts and the cost savings, that clinic was the first one to go. (laughs) But I bet you didn't ask the men any questions, did you? Did you ask the men any questions? Um, I probably didn't as much as I do now because my knowledge about men's fertility is a lot greater than it was then. So I, I certainly didn't talk about male fertility in the way that I do now, but I, I did talk about, yeah, I did talk about alcohol and not smoking, those basic things. But I think I, now I go into a lot more detail than I did then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and in the US, I mean, we're so much further behind uh, so many European countries since we don't have a health service of any sort. We did pass the Affordable Care Act in 2010, which increased the number of people who had health insurance. And within the Affordable Care Act, there was a provision that women could get preconception health appointments covered, but there was no such provision for men, right? So it's sort of everywhere you look, there's more evidence, you know, like once you've been trained to see the lack of attention to men's reproductive health, it just shows up almost everywhere you look. Yeah. 
I mean, this kind of book, like when I was sharing it on my on my Instagram, I could see the people who I know share their stories of dealing with male factor. I could see them going, "What's this?" And I can tell that that's the reaction that we're gonna we're gonna have when we share it because it. I think it's brilliant. It's exactly like when I when we got our diagnosis, my husband was instantly looking online to see what we could find out, and we could find so little, you know, as yeah. to why there wasn't more information about what could have caused it and why he couldn't understand when he was, you know, in peak fitness and looking after his, himself. He was a personal trainer he was his food was all right all the things that you'd assume and we just couldn't understand that there Mm -hmm. wasn't any information and I know that this kind of book I think if anything will hopefully get people asking more questions which is what the podcast is about as well is is giving people the confidence to say well what about this other test can you look more at me can you physically examine me Mm -hmm. those types of questions Mm -hmm. hopefully people will start the men will start to have more of when they're in these in these meetings. Yeah, well, thank you so much. That is my hope for this book as well. This was really, really uh, a pleasure and I really appreciate all the work that you're doing through the Fertility Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. All the info of our guests will be just below this episode in whichever podcast app you're listening in. And remember, if you do just one new thing today to help you get even more support on your fertility journey, why not become a patron of the podcast? Just visit patreon.com forward slash the fertility podcast.